Thanks, Josh. Good evening, everyone. Welcome, uh, grace and peace. It's really, really great to be with you, as always. So this is uh, part two in our series titled Lent from Repentance to Renewal. And uh, I gave a kind of a bit of a longer introduction to Lent in my message last week. So if you missed that, you can go back and listen to it on our podcast. But uh, just to try and sum it up, Lent is, is basically a season uh, that leads up to Good Friday. Uh, that, of course, is the day of Jesus' um, crucifixion. And then on to Easter. Uh, so it, it's kind of a season of spiritual preparation. Uh, and traditionally, Christians took uh, or, or continue to take the, the 40 days of Lent to either engage a new spiritual discipline uh, or to give something up that they're, I mean, that kind of that part of us, that ego, that false self um, kind of craves, whether it's, I don't know, the uh, lots of additional TV time or chocolate or meat or you know whatever it is you find yourself um, kind of self-medicating with. <laughs> That's kind of what Lent uh, is about, is that, that season of, of spiritual preparation and purification um, as we approach uh, Holy Week. So uh, with that in mind, the title of my message on this second Sunday of Lent uh, is You Are Not a Thing. You are not a thing. Uh, and that leads me right to my big idea for tonight, which is this. You are not a thing. You are a temple, a house of divinity. So it may seem at points as we go through this message that I have lost sight uh, of this central insight. Do not worry. I will come back to it. I promise I've not forgotten. Uh, so just a heads up on that. And then finally, our primary text uh, is going to be Exodus chapter 20. Uh, verses 1 through 17. And uh, this is, of course, the, the passage where the famous Ten Commandments are found. And so our very own uh, Marissa Martinez, she's going to go ahead and uh, read that for us tonight. So Marissa, go for it. And God spoke all these words. I'm the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blesses the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, 
or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Thanks, Marissa. Uh, so here's the question that I'd like to begin with. Uh, why is something right or wrong? Uh, what makes it so? So I'm nearly done uh, with a book by Jonathan Haidt titled The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion. And uh, Haidt is a social psychologist who teaches at New York University. And uh, it's, it's an excellent read, really insightful. But one of the things that he studies is uh, what people believe is right and wrong. And just as importantly, um, why they believe something is right or wrong. So it's, it's kind of the what and the why of, of ethics. And now to this end, he's very fond of questionnaires with difficult moral conundrums that he kind of presents to folks. Um, now he has it a lot online. There's like a website, I think it's yourmorals.org or something like that. You can go and take some of his questionnaires. Um, but back in like his graduate uh, school days, he would just go to McDonald's in like, you know, random places, upper class, you know, kind of working class places, just anywhere. And he'd go to McDonald's and he'd set up and like ask people if they would engage his questionnaires because he's kind of, you know, he needs data as a social scientist and, and a psychologist. So um, here's a few questions uh, or a few kind of examples of the types of questions he would include. Uh, and these are like actual uh, ones from his questionnaires. Now, I should warn you, they can be a little bit disturbing. Um, Although I haven't, I've intentionally edited some of the more extreme ones. <laughs> Karen and Mindy uh, reviewed some of these questions and they gave me feedback like, yeah, don't, don't include that, that one. So uh, I haven't included them all, but here's a few, um, they're still a little bit disturbing. Um, now, notice though, it's on purpose because basically he needs to get a rise out of people, so to speak. He needs to stir up our righteous indignation. Uh, so, all right, here's the first one. A family dog was killed by a car in front of their house. They had heard that dog meat was delicious. So they cut up the dog's body and they cooked it and ate it for dinner. Was that wrong? Why? Uh, like I said, a, more than a little disturbing. All right, here's another example. This one isn't quite as extreme, I don't think, but Still, not, it's, not, it's not great. All right, so uh, here it is. A woman was cleaning out her closet and she finds her old American flag. She doesn't want the flag anymore. So she cuts it up into pieces and uses the rags to clean her bathroom. Was that wrong? Why? Now, it's likely uh, that regardless of, I mean, almost anything like your religious upbringing, um, cultural background, political affiliation. Um, I mean, you, regardless of all that, you probably had a, a certain kind of quick gut reaction to the, those stories. Uh, I mean, in, in story number one, the family kind of did something, you know, kind of morally like disgusting. And then in story number two, the lady did something probably kind of triggered more of like a disrespect. You know, you think like, Ugh, I don't think you should do that. Um, so we have these gut reactions. What Height points out is uh, the trouble comes when when we try to explain why, like when we try to give a, a kind of a logic. Uh, you see, Height he's a very clever psychologist because he crafts these stories to make it abundantly clear um, that no one was hurt, in, at least intentionally, like in the process. For example, if the story you know went that the family killed their dog 
and then ate it. Well, then we'd say like, well, you can't you murder your pet, right? But the moral conundrum becomes when it's already hit and killed by a car, uh, well, but still something in us says like, I, I don't think you should eat your pet. But then we're kind of left scratching our heads when we try to explain why. Uh, or, I mean, perhaps we just resort to an emotional, well, you just can't do that. Uh, but, you know, of course, that's not like much of an explanation. Um, in other words, we have these moral intuitions, these gut reactions of what is right and what is wrong, uh, but our problem uh, becomes explaining why these types of moral conundrums are wrong. And the reason we're baffled and trying to explain why is because the great foundation of modern uh, Western ethics, uh, and that would include, of course, America, now, is that something is wrong because it hurts someone else. Like that's kind of the lens through which we view ethics. So it's a thing is wrong when it hurts someone else um, or hurts even a person, like even us. Uh, so Haidt, what he did though, is he intentionally crafted stories that would strike our instincts as wrong, but deprived us of our go-to reasoning. Uh, in fact, he said it was really fascinating to watch people try and come up with the why, with the reason, um, when he was doing these questionnaires, because basically they were trying to figure out well, how someone actually was hurt. So, for example, they would say things like, I mean, uh, well, you, you you can't eat dog, right? Isn't that, isn't that bad for you? I've heard, I think... I think you'll get sick, isn't it right? I think you'll get sick, even though of course, there's like countries all over the world where people eat dog. Um, but that's, you know, we're, what are they doing? They're, they're trying to come back to this foundation of not harming someone or something. Uh, so he unpacked this in more detail by citing a totally different ethicist named Dr. Richard Schweder. And Schweder, he says, there are three great moral themes in human culture. Again, hang with me. I promise I have not forgotten about the Ten Commandments. Uh, all right, so three great moral themes. Number one, the ethic of autonomy. Uh, autonomy here means moral independence. Uh, this is the idea that I can do whatever I want as long as I do not hurt anyone else, right? Sounds familiar because that's what we were just talking about uh, previously. So um, in other words, as long as I do not infringe upon someone else's rights, upon their freedoms, uh, you know, I'm, I'm good. But the moment I hurt someone else, okay, then it's wrong. Then I've gone too far. And this ethic of autonomy uh, is, as I named just a moment ago, the absolute foundation of our moral reasoning in the West, both left, right, and center, uh, politically speaking. We, we use the ethic of autonomy to justify why something is right or wrong. And this is why Haidt crafted his stories to deprive uh, poor people like us of that explanation. And then we just sort of sit there floundering like, I don't know why you can't eat your dead dog, but it seems very wrong to me. <laughs> uh, however, Schweder points out that most of the world would not at all want to stop here at the ethic of autonomy. They would want to go further. They would want to talk about the collective, the community. This is the second moral theme, the ethic of community. Here the idea is that people are not simply uh, isolated individuals, but rather that people find themselves embedded in larger groups, right? Families, companies, towns, churches, nations, and so on. And in fact, life as we know it would not be possible without these communities. 
Therefore, folks in non-Western countries say, uh, people have an obligation to align their lives in such a way that these communities can flourish. So it's, it's not just me living my life as I see fit. I have a duty to fulfill, a place in uh, you know, an institution or a, a hierarchy where I am called to be competent for the sake of my, my tribe, uh, my, my people, you know, my community. Uh, so that's, that's the ethic of community. Uh, however, that would be kind of a whole other sermon. I'm not gonna go into that one a lot tonight. Instead, the one that really got me thinking uh, was Schweder's third moral theme. Uh, and it is the ethic of divinity. This says that people are above all else, uh, before they're part of a community, before they're even kind of have a sense of, of being an individual, uh, people are carriers of the divine image. Uh, call it you know, the soul, the divine spark, call it what you want, but it's, it's language trying to grasp, trying to name this reality. Uh, to put it in more Christian terms, the ethic of divinity is basically is naming uh, that we are in some mysterious way called into existence by God, that we are sustained in every moment by God's spirit, and that when we die, it is to God that we return to be judged. So this ethic of divinity also seems to be why there are certain actions that we interpret as moving us higher, so to speak, um, and other actions that we interpret as moving us lower. And this is often where we start to equate, you know, good, bad. In other words, there are, there are some things that seem to draw us upward toward the best versions of ourselves, towards the, the pinnacle of what humanity can be, our highest ideals and values. And ultimately, I think that's trying to grasp at language like up toward God, while other actions do the opposite. Right? Other actions seem to move us downward, down toward a, a more kind of base, a sort of reptilian, um, kind of almost animalistic you know, existence. Some actions seem to um, degrade us. And this moral theme uh, is why we don't eat our pets, because they trusted us to love them. In other words, there are some things in this world uh, especially human beings that are sacred and holy. And there are certain actions that move us higher while others uh, move us lower, even if no one is hurt. Which brings us back to the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are not simply laws, at least in the modern sense of that word. There is no do the crime, pay the time mentality operating here. There's really not a utilitarian kind of cost benefit analysis being run here. Like someone who might say, be like, hmm, I mean, maybe I should steal. I mean, if I could get $5 million and then, you know, if I go to jail for eight years, I mean, it might be worth it. Uh, like, no, that's not, <laughs> that's not the Ten Commandments. That's not what's going on here. Uh, I mean, there are some vague references to things like going better or worse for you, um, you know, kind of depending on your actions. 
but it's not as clear as if you do thing X or action Y, then you will go to jail for 10 years. That's, that's not what the Ten Commandments are about. Instead, I'm going to contend that the Ten Commandments are deeply rooted, yes, in all three of Schweder's moral themes, um, you know, autonomy, uh, community divinity, uh, but especially that third one, especially the ethic of divinity. And this is why I opened uh, with the statement, you are not a thing. You are a temple, a house of divinity. In other words, you are the place where the Holy Spirit of God dwells. And, and it's interesting to kind of have this framework and then like look at the culture, um, look at art and music and novels and movies and kind of analyze like what's going on here? Are they operating um, with any sort of ethic of divinity or not? Uh, there's an old line. I mean, it's, it's super crass, but it, uh, it just came back to me from, I guess, the, I think this band was like maybe big in the 90s or the early 2000s. It's from my youth, that's all I know. Uh, so I looked at it, I didn't even know who sang this, but it's the band, the Bloodhound Gang. Um, and so I think it's you know vague enough that if we have any young kids, they might like catch on. So uh, it says, you and me, baby, we ain't nothing but mammals. So let's do it like they do on the Discovery Channel. Uh, yeah, okay, so what's that? What's missing there? What's, what's going on? What's missing is the ethic of divinity. In other words, uh, sometimes a thing is wrong, not because anyone is hurt, uh, but because it dishonors the image of God in a person. Right? It moves us down towards a more unconscious, uh, predatory, maybe even like animal-like existence, rather than upward towards the God who is love. Okay, so why does this matter? It seems like a lot of highfalutin ideas <laughs> roaming around here. Like, what does this actually change? Um, let me try to help this kind of touch ground. Here's, here's what I've observed in folks who go to similar types of progressive churches um, like ours. It's also something I've observed in Christians um, who get super into politics, both left and right, um, where like whether or not they realize it, they begin to use purely Western secular philosophical arguments to uh, justify why a thing or a stance is right or wrong. So I'm not saying just being you know into politics is terrible. I'm, I'm saying it's when we kind of get in that mode and we um, we start kind of basing our politics on Western secular philosophical uh, assumptions. Um, and then finally, this is also something, and don't worry, I'll name it in a second, this is also something I've observed in those who are in the throes of the deconstruction uh, of their faith, right? They just, they don't even know what to believe anymore. They're sort of reeling from doubt and questions and floundering around with what is right and what is wrong. And since to be part of Western culture is to already be swimming in very individualistic and quite secular waters, here's what happens. What happens is that we begin to let go of the ethic of divinity. We, we begin to let go. And the world and all of creation becomes less holy for us. Less sacred. People, including us, become less holy for us. 
less sacred. And uh, I, I'm not saying we do this on purpose. It's not, it's not a conscious process. Uh, we don't even know that we have done that, but we have. And again, since to be part of Western culture is to be part of a deeply individualistic culture, uh, we start to judge any moral issue um, that cannot be defended with an ethic of autonomy. We kind of start to judge it as um, dumb and backwards and maybe wrong. Uh, I recall uh, a conversation with a friend uh, I had many years ago, and uh, this isn't anyone at the table, uh, but they had, at this time, they'd mostly kind of left their Christianity behind at this point. Um, but they had been raised, you know, in church and all that. And so we were talking um, about a hypothetical situation. And the question was this, um, what if your spouse, uh, like, you know, passed away in some tragic accident or something? And, uh, and I should mention this person, they, they were, had been married. Um, they were married quite young. And, uh, and at that time they were, a Christian and they had a really like strong kind of sexual ethic growing up. So their, you know, their sexual encounters pre-marriage were like very minimal. Uh, so the question was, what if your spouse like passed away? Um, how would you handle that? And specifically, how would you handle, you know, dating and sex and, and, you know, all of that. And his answer, honestly, it kind of shocked me because he basically said, uh, Oh, well, I, I think I just go a bit wild. And I was like, oh, oh wow, really? Uh, why? And uh, and he kind of described basically as we unpacked a little bit more. He was talking about basically uh, lots of one night stands, <laughs> and and I said, oh, okay, uh, interesting. Um, why? Why? You know? And he said, well, uh, I mean, why not? Who cares? Not hurting anyone. And I was like. Huh. And and I just sort of we just kind of faded the conversation out, and um, it was a little bit awkward. But uh, and by the way, I should mention I realize um, you know I'm uh, I'm on kind of tricky ground here because of all the negative side to I get purity culture and Christian circles in the last you know thirty years or so, and you know premarital sex or sex outside of marriage was often used to like shame people, make them feel dirty and terrible. Um, so that's not really my point. Um, but as I reflected on that conversation with my, you know, with my friend, uh, and I, I reflected on it as I was reading Height's book, and it occurred to me uh, that what this uh, gentleman, what he'd done was, um, basically, or what he was using to justify this idea of a string of, you know, one night stands <laughs> um, was really, it was an ethic of autonomy, right? Um, because as he let go of his Christian faith, um, what else had gone with it? The ethic of divinity. This idea that himself and other people are holy and that even sex itself is holy and, and not something to be engaged in a, you know, a sort of flippant, just for the sake of pleasure, you know, kind of fashion. Uh, in other words, to be Christian is to operate with a very deep, and profound ethic of divinity, where people are not things, um, people are not animals, as that's commonly understood, animals, right? They're, they're not uh, walking meat suits. Uh, no, like you are a temple, a house of divinity. In fact, 
Heck, all of creation is a temple, a house of divinity. It is holy, holy, holy. And, and this, I, I believe, really is the unspoken foundation of the Ten Commandments. Though, you might say, though, it's not completely unspoken. I mean, it's hinted at in the very structure of the commandments themselves. Uh, just think of how do they begin? The first three commandments are God, God, God. Uh, right? You, you shall have no other gods before me. That's verse three. You shall not make for yourself an image, right? An idol. That's verse four. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. That's verse seven. Those are the first three. In other words, God is and God cares how we think and how we relate back to God. And then from that relationship, that connection to God, the other seven commandments having to do with how we treat ourselves and other people, they flow from there, right? How do we relate to Sabbath rest, um, to parents, to sexuality, to stealing, to um, speech and, and uh, the possessions of our neighbor? And like, how do we relate to them? It all flows from a very God-saturated way of viewing the world. It's, it's an ethic of divinity. So in, in short, what I'm naming is that as Christians, I really think we need to reclaim this. And, and let's not, um, in all of our doubt and deconstructing, um, move away from an ethic of divinity. Heck, if anything, realize how much of modern American Christianity has lost an ethic of divinity and then respond to that, like deconstruct that. <laughs> in other words, um, see yourself, other people in the world as more holy. And, and let's not in all our thinking on politics and all of our talking, <laughs> we do lots of talking about politics too. Let's not only learn to speak the moral grammar of eth ethical autonomy and individualism, right? I've got my rights. Uh, even though that is the only language you will hear on all of the major news outlets. Let let's also learn to be fluent in the ethic of community and the ethic of divinity. And when we read the Ten Commandments, Let's not hear a bunch of heavy-handed, guilt-inducing statements about how terrible we are. Instead, let's hear an invitation to see the world in a God-infused way again, a call to ascend higher. So uh, in closing, here's, here's a reflection question uh, for you in this season uh, of Lent that I'd like you to, to sit with for, for a moment, and maybe as you go about this evening. Um, so here it is. What belief or action have I been justifying with an ethic of autonomy that an ethic of divinity might call into question? So let me say it again. What belief or action have I been justifying with an ethic of autonomy? In other words, who cares as long as I don't hurt anyone? That an ethic of divinity, right? Um, might actually call into question.
Um, all right, let me pray for you. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would uh, move us towards this very uh, God-infused way of viewing the world, that the people around us um, would be holy to us. And God, where um, we've based kind of our whole view of the world in, in ethics of the individual, would you expand us, God? Would you expand our um, vision to include that, but to move beyond it, to see bigger. God, to care deeply for the community, to care deeply for the divine image in all things. And God, may that, may that shift, um, may it do something really deep and profound in us. So Lord, help us be a community of love, faith, hope, and a, a deeply um, good and kind people, just people, um, people who care about others. Do that work in us, Lord. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.